Hello, everyone, and welcome to this Herbert Smith Freehills podcast, which is the seventh in our series to mark the launch of the second edition of our textbook, Class Actions in England and Wales, which is published by Sweet and Maxwell. I'm Greg Rowan, and I'm a partner in the disputes team at Herbert Smith Freehills, and also one of the general editors of the textbook. I have with me today Greg Anderson, a partner, and Sarah Irons, a professional support consultant, both in our insurance and professional risks team in London. Greg and Sarah are also authors of the textbook. Uh, this episode is going to be a bit different to the ones, uh, the others in the series, in that we're not going to be considering a particular category or type of class actions. And in fact, um, class actions where insurance is the subject of the dispute are actually pretty rare. Uh, instead, this episode is going to explore how insurance can play an integral role in any type of, of class action that an organisation faces. Um, Greg, perhaps you can explain what we mean by that. Uh, thanks, Greg. Yes, of course. And uh, hello, everyone. Uh, insurance can play a significant role in uh, class actions, and we've done a fair uh, number of those over the years. And uh, the reason for that is that there may be insurance to cover the defendant's liability, but uh, often more important practically and from a timing perspective, uh, it's legal costs in defending the case. Insurance may not always be at the forefront of the party's minds, but it will be of interest to both sides, not only from a financial perspective, although, of course, the bottom line is very important, but also because the involvement of insurers in the landscape of a class action will affect the way that it's handled. Now, I should make clear uh, that we're not looking today at what insurance cover there may be for claimants or their potential liability for adverse costs, uh, so-called after the event or ATE insurance, nor are we looking at some of the new insurance solutions that exist in the market to assist defendants once a dispute has arisen, uh, what we're talking about in this episode is existing insurance cover a defendant may have purchased and key issues that need to be borne in mind from an insurance coverage perspective as the class action progresses. Thanks, Greg. That really helps to set the scene. Um, could I ask you to explain what type of insurance policies um, a, a defendant might have that could be relevant here? Uh, we're talking here about liability policies, Greg, and they provide cover for the insured liabilities to third parties. So directors and officers liability, products liability, professional indemnity and cyber being some of the better examples. That's in contrast to so-called first party policies, which cover the insured's own assets, such as property damage policies. Now, under a liability policy, the insurer's liability to pay uh, under that policy is triggered at the point in time when the insured defender's own li liability is established and quantified by judgment, arbitration, award uh, or settlement subject to the policy terms. So substantively there, you're really talking about the end of the uh, matter, when it's reached judgment, when the settlement's entered into. But importantly, those policies also tend to cover the costs of the insured in defending the action against it. And that part of the cover typically applies on an as incurred basis once the retention is exceeded. Now, that cover for defence costs is often very significant. It may go all the way up to the top of the policy limit. And in some cases, it is the most significant aspect of cover for a defendant in the context of the class action. Now, these kinds of actions can be brought, as you know, in a many different areas, uh, as can be seen from the different episodes of this podcast. 
and a defendant will look to different policies in different contexts. Now, I touched on some of the policies earlier, but just to put some meat on the bones there, directors facing a shareholder class action or indeed a company facing a securities claim would look to its DNO policy. Uh, by contrast, for a data breach claim, one would look to a cyber policy or a general liability policy if that covers cyber risks. And a uh, company facing a claim by its clients, perhaps in a competition context, would look to a professional indemnity policy, whereas a defendant uh, who is facing claims by third parties uh, who have been personally injured or have had their property damaged by, let's say, a product that the insured had manufactured would look to their public or product liability policy, depending on the nature of the claim. And is it the case of just identifying which one particular policy might provide cover? Uh, sometimes it is, but sometimes the position is far more complex and uh, there is the possibility of triggering more than one kind of coverage, uh, either because policies overlap or because the factual matrix which gives rise to the class action is part of a matrix that also gives rise to other kinds of losses. Uh, so at the outset, you need to give things like that careful thought so as not to miss a trick. A good example of that would be a serious cyber breach that result in a data class action. That action would be the subject of a cyber policy, but it's also possible hypothetically if the impact was sufficiently severe that there could be regulatory action uh, against directors or even a securities claim in the most significant of cases or customer redress payable uh, if services were impacted. So the securities claim would be the subject matter of a DNO policy, as probably would be the regulatory action, and the customer claim would be the subject of a PI policy. So even where there's only one kind of policy that's triggered, it's not necessarily that simple. There might be multiple policies in play, either for different years of account or where the policy structure in layers, different policies on each layer. Uh, so it can end up being quite complex. Sarah, turning now to you, um, when a defendant has identified a relevant insurance policy, what steps should they be thinking about taking? Well, the, the key thing really is for the insured uh, at a basic level to, is to comply with the terms of its policy. So that makes sure it preserves coverage and is ultimately able to bring a successful insurance claim. So important things to be thinking about will be notifying insurers of the dispute in accordance with the terms of the policy. There might be specific time limits or requirements as to the form of that notification. And it's important that a defendant isn't waiting until it receives a letter before action or a claim form. A liability policy will typically allow you to notify circumstances likely to give rise to a claim. And so insurers should be notified as soon as you become aware of the potential for a class action to ensure that cover is protected. Another issue to have in mind is insurer's consent. Um, you're going to need insurers prior consent to the incurring of legal costs in defending the claim. So engaging on that early on will be crucial. And that can often be a condition precedent to being able to recover the legal costs. So it's really important. Also on the topic of consent later on, you're going to need insurer consent if there are to be any admissions of liability or settlement of the action. They sound, Sarah, like important steps for a defendant to be thinking about when defending any type of third party claim. Perhaps you could draw out for us some specific, if you like, quirks uh, in relation to complying with policy terms in the context of class actions. You're absolutely right, Greg. The points I've just mentioned are generally applicable to all claims. I think there's probably two specific points I'd draw out in the context of class actions. First is establishing liability. 
So as Greg mentioned, for cover to be triggered under a liability policy, the insured has to establish that it has a legal liability either by judgment or arbitration award or settlement. And in the normal course, if an insured has got a judgment, that's likely to be strongly indicative of the existence of a legal liability, although important to note that it's not because the insurer can always contest that. But in the context of a class action, depending on how that's been tried, there may be additional factors for the insured to prove following a judgment or order. So there may only have been, for example, a trial of preliminary issues or a limited number of claims tried as test claims. The key thing to be aware of really is that the insured may need to do more to ascertain and quantify its liability for each claimant to the satisfaction of the insurer when they're thinking about a class action. And that issue of uh, establishing liability is also relevant to any settlement. We've said already it's going to be crucial to get the insurer's consent to any settlement. And to do that, you're going to have to provide the insurers with enough information for them to make a reasonably informed decision on that. And that might be difficult if at the time the settlement is under consideration, uh, it's simply not possible to ascertain liability because the case isn't sufficiently advanced or perhaps not all the evidence has been exchanged or in a U.S. context, for example, the, the class might not yet have been certified. And that's not to say that insurers won't give consent. It's just that it would be crucial to bring them with you and get that consent before settling. I'd also just flag, be mindful of the framing of the terms of any settlement agreement, as there is case law, a famous case in the insurance context called Lumbermans and Bovis Lend Lease from 2004, which held that an insured in that case couldn't recover from its liability insurers because the insured's loss could not be ascertained from the terms of the settlement agreement. Now, that decision has been heavily criticised by both practitioners and in the courts, but it's really just another reason to keep the insurer well informed and seek their consent before concluding any settlement. So that's really the first quirk, if you like, establishing liability and doing that in the context of class actions. I think the second point I draw out linked to that is establishing quantum. The defendant insured is going to need to satisfy the insurer, not only that it has a legal liability, but that it's liable for the amount of the loss it's claiming under the policy. And again, the nature of a class action means that this doesn't automatically fit with how a liability policy might respond to a straightforward claim where you have one claimant, a liability and then a payment. For example, you might have quantum being addressed in a subsequent stage in the litigation. There's also the added practical complexity of having to deal with a large number of claimants where the loss or injury of each might be different and it might be difficult to assess from a quantum perspective. So how might that play out in practice? Well, if you're looking to settle a class action, the parties will need to agree whether settlement sum is expressed as an aggregate amount to be paid to the whole group or separate payments to individual claimants. And that might be by um, reference to a particular formula. And really, it's just vital that the insurer is involved in that process. So you can see that you might have difficulties if, for example, a defendant to a class action simply agrees an aggregate amount with the claimants without reference to insurers. Contrast that um, with a situation where a formula is agreed for individual payments and the insurer improves in advance the use of that formula and agrees that that's going to be sufficient to establish the legal liability of the insured to each claimant. You're going to have a much smoother road to recovering under your policy in that latter situation. And and just staying with this theme of um, quirks, Greg, are there any other insurance policy quirks that you'd like to highlight as particularly relevant in the class actions context? Uh, There's just one final point worth mentioning, which is aggregation and attachment. I'm not sure I quite characterise it as a quirk. It's a little bit more substantial than that. But it really requires consideration and careful consideration at the earliest stage. 
Now, what I mean by that is it's common in liability policies for there to be uh, aggregation wording that that provides for two or more separate claims covered by the policy to be treated as one claim where they have a common unifying factor as described in the policy that links them together. Uh, That impacts how you apply the policy limit and any deductible or excess uh, that is to be applied. So you can see it makes and can make a significant difference to what you actually get paid. And that's why aggregation is particularly important in the context of class actions. And the reason for that is that there are multiple claimants and issues may arise as to whether or not you can bundle and join their claims together as a single claim for policy purposes in the first instance to uh, seek to get through the retention of the policy. Now, in some cases, aggregation may mean the difference between the policy responding and there may be no cover at all. For example, if the individual claims without aggregation are below the deductible and it can vary by reference to different classes of policy, different kinds of policyholder. Uh, often that causal language is really broad, proximate, beyond proximate causation, a single originating cause. And that issue effectively goes away. But in other lines, there can be a tighter test which can make matters more complex and difficult. Now, perhaps more commonly as an issue that comes up in the context of class actions is the related issue of policy attachment. I, before you get to the question of uh, what does the individual policy cover, you have to answer the question of which policy, which policy year. For example, there may be language in a policy which brings into scope, in fact, typically there would be, where you have claims made policies all future claims or losses, which aggregate as a single claim or loss. Now, sometimes the events that may give rise to a class action can evolve over time. So it's not as simple as saying the class action is being commenced. I notify that policy year and that's the one that can respond. And that's because notifications may have been made to multiple policy years where you have that evolving fact pattern. So to give you an example of what I mean by that, let's say there are Uh, Some uh, claimants who complain in year one, uh, they have a concern. Then there's an overseas regulatory investigation in relation to the same subject matter in year two. Um, A US class action is commenced in year uh, three and then a UK class action in year four following dismissal of the US claim on jurisdictional grounds. And I should say this isn't just hypothetical stuff. These are the kind of things that we have seen in practice. And to what policy year then? Does the UK class action commenced in year four attach? That can be a tricky issue. Indeed, there's a possibility, I don't say a probability, but a possibility that no particular policy year responds. It depends on what notifications have been made and when, and on the aggregation terms and exclusions in each policy, as well as the duty of fair presentation. And there's often in practice an issue as between insurers themselves as to what policy year ought to respond. So everyone knows somewhere in that continuum of policies coverage applies, but the insurers disagree on which. So determining which years might be triggered and engaging in the right way with insurers from the early uh, stages of the matter necessarily involves careful early consideration by the policyholder of the named facts and the relevant policy terms in order to deploy an effective strategy based on that. Good. One final question before we wrap up. Um, You mentioned, Greg, at the outset that the involvement of insurers in the class action landscape can affect the way that the action is handled. Could you 
Just explain a bit more about that. Um, how does insurance impact the dynamics in a class action? Uh, well, we've talked already about needing insurers' consent to various things and making sure they have sufficient information in order to be able to agree, for example, to any proposed settlement. And the key is to bring insurers with you and keep them involved. Uh, and that can be harder than it sounds. Uh, liability insurance programmes are typically comprised of different layers of insurance involving different insurers on each layer. In a class action where there may be large sums involved and multiple layers of insurers potentially triggered, that can add logistical complexity uh, and that shouldn't be underestimated. For example, uh, different layers and even different insurers within a particular layer may have separate legal representation. Uh, that's before you even get to the possibility of different kinds of policy uh, or different years of account being triggered. So you may be in a position of having to engage with multiple different parties to keep them updated, to discuss coverage, uh, and they may take different views on issues. And that can further complicate the process. For example, were you to be seeking comments on a draft defence, there may be multiple inputs and it takes time to go through that process. The insurers may have different perspectives on particular different issues that they wish to discuss with you or challenge the strategy. So during any discussions with insurers around settlement, an insured has to be mindful that insurers will require approval uh, in relation to various things, potentially at various different stages of the matter. It's not necessarily a one-off yes or no. You need to keep that process going. So all of these factors, as well as the insurer's own policy obligations, mean that the level of engagement required between the insured and insurers in the class action can be really quite significant and occur over some time, often years, from the point of the initial notification onwards. Greg, I completely agree with all of that. I think the key message, just to sum up, is for a defendant who may be facing a class action to, first of all, identify early on the insurance cover that may be relevant and then engage with the relevant insurers from the outset. I think it's also important from a policyholder perspective to recognise that in order to secure coverage and then ultimately, hopefully, a payout from insurers is going to require a real investment of time and effort. It's not as simple as presenting an invoice to insurers for costs or liability incurred and expecting them to simply reimburse you, unfortunately. Um, wise words indeed. Um, thank you both very much. That brings us to the end of our podcast. So um, just to thank everyone listening as, as ever, um, we'll be back with future editions in this series in due course.